Okay, you guys ready to talk about worship again? Yeah, always. <laughs> always. All right, good. We're in uh, week 18, and we've only got, let's see, hopefully, um, I'm going to try to cut this at 20 or 21 weeks, so we're almost done. So if you have any questions, you better, you better get them out now, if you have any issues, you know, things of that nature rebuttals, rebukes. We've been talking about the uniqueness of corporate worship um, and God's instruction thus regarding corporate worship. We've moved from private worship to corporate worship. And specifically, we've been talking the last three weeks, not counting uh, last week when we didn't have Sunday school, talking about the regulative, regulative principle. Good for you to join us. We've been talking about specifically the regulative principle as defined by the Reformed Confessions. And essentially what we've kind of built and got to this point is that God alone determines how sinners may approach Him in worship. We established that. We saw from the scriptures as well that human innovation in worship uh, nullifies and undermines true worship and often invites the special judgment of God. And we also saw last time, positively, uh, we made a positive argument that God blesses the forms of worship that we see in the New Testament. And that there's enough there uh, to fill all of our time together. So that really, if we're adding anything, I made the argument, we're going to have to take away something that God has um, either commanded or given us an example of in the testimony of Scripture And all of that, of course, is an argument to limit our worship to the special revelation of God and His Word. To let the Scriptures form um, our doctrine of corporate worship. So, last time we also considered some opposing views. And I made note, uh, tried to make the argument, we were moving really quickly then. I tried to make the argument that some of the things that we clearly see... Um, or I should say that we, we clearly see as error. Uh, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of these issues that they bring into their worship um, are kind of really left to, uh, if we want to disagree with them, we're kind of left to our own subjectivity and kind of what we think is best, apart from a doctrine of the regulative principle. I mean, there are things in the Roman Catholic worship that you know, we may say well, that's clearly wrong, but without a doctrine of the regular principle, on what basis do, can we say that? Well, um, understanding that God specifically instructs us in worship, uh, that His our worship is limited to His Word, kind of fortifies our arguments against some of these um, opposing views. So that's kind of what we considered last time. And we started to turn now to make some application based upon all of these things. And so this is kind of what what we're doing today. We're turning to make application. That's what we're going to do next week and the following week and um, perhaps the following week and then we will will be done. But we're going to move quickly over some application because I've really kind of done all the groundwork for the theology And hopefully you can just see how everything just connects. So, no problem, right? So, we believe that God has spoken objectively, clearly, 
and that Christ governs his church with clear objective boundaries in worship. Christ is the head of his church. He is the chief shepherd of his church, corporate. Again, I'm talking about when we come together. I'm not talking about individual lives. But on a corporate level, Christ is the one who exercises his authority through the word of his apostles and prophets in the New Testament and the working of his spirit. So today we're going to look at the application of such regarding the day of worship. That is... We've already touched on all of the other, uh, I didn't do it explicitly, but implicitly, we touched on all of the other forms of worship that we see, or I should say applications of the regulative principle regarding forms of worship. We talked about prayer, we talked about the Lord's Supper, right, singing, we talked about preaching, the reading of the Word, those things. We saw how, you know, the New Testament sets that example. But after that, in our confession, it moves to make application of the regulative principle regarding the day of worship. And that's what we're going to consider today. And then uh, next week, we're actually, I hate to say it, in fact, I've been dreading saying it, but we're not going to finish this today. (laughs) Um, I got into it, I'm like, no, I I can't skip over it that fast. So we're going to finish this next week and do liturgy next week. And then the next two weeks, we're going to focus on these two. We'll probably spend maybe, maybe five or ten minutes on this one and spend the majority of our time talking about music because I know that's a big one for you guys today. It's big for our our church culture today. So, But this is where we're going. We're going to talk about the day of worship. Has God instructed us what day to worship? And essentially, let me put it this way. If corporate worship is distinct from private worship, which is something I argued earlier, way back when, if we are called to join together with other believers in a special assembly of worship and to do special acts of worship, things that you know uh, we don't do in the, our own private worship, like uh, preaching the Lord's Supper, baptism, things of that nature, then how often should this be? How often should we gather and worship? Right? It's a pretty easy question. And and when should this be? Does it matter? All right, so what if your pastor said, what if your church said, to be a true Christian, you must make time every single day to gather with believers and worship? Corporately, as the church. Yeah, exactly. Many cults do this, living in their own communities. Muslims, you pray five times a day, preferably with a group. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't imagine a group you can just yep. do it, but yep. it's very common in Muslim culture yeah. to hit the mosque five times a day yeah. and get through a quote prayer. You know, with That's right. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of the super saints the, uh, will take the Mass every single day. The priests. So, I mean, this is a legitimate question. What if to be a true Christian, to be a, a faithful Christian, to be in good standing with your church, your pastor or your church says, you've got to come here every single day? On what basis would we say, 
and it seems a little excessive. Or would we? Or should we gather every single day? Could be a blessing. Could be a blessing, certainly. Yeah, absolutely it could be. What if on the flip side of this, which is probably more common nowadays, to be a true Christian, you really only have to come once a month. We are going to have corporate worship once a month. Which, you know what? The cynic in me says the, the reason this probably isn't more of a thing is because of um, tithes and offerings and the lifestyle that pastors want to live. A lot of these celebrity pastors. Um, I remember hearing one time a guy fret because the church was canceled because of snow and ice. And he's like, oh, mark my words. The people who would give on this Sunday will not bring their offering next week. It has to be in the, on the, in, in the, in the moment. In, as a church, we will never recover from a week off in our budget. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Is that what you're concerned about? The fact that it's going to hurt your budget to miss church because there's ice on the road? So, uh, yeah, the cynic in me thinks this might be more of a thing given our culture nowadays. Our autonomous, let's spend our weekends doing fun things if it, if it weren't for the fact that we have a, um, there's a number of hungry, uh, money-hungry celebrity pastors in our day who have a lifestyle to support and a big church building budget to support. But, you know, we can make it either a corporate or a, a private application here. What if you said, only gather once a month, or once a quarter, or once a year? And on a private level, twice a year year is what the Roman Catholic Church demands of its followers. To be, you know, in good standing, to remain in good standing in the Roman Catholic Church, the minimum you have to come is Christmas and Easter. That's the standard that they set. If you want to be in good standing... How often do saints saints have to come worship in the Roman Catholic Church? Well, they got together and said, twice a year, that's a bare minimum. So, in some respect, um, oh, hold on. (laughs) Don't read that. You understand what I'm saying when I say at a corporate or a private level? At a corporate level, a cult might say, you have to come every single week. But on a more private level, or maybe a de facto level, oftentimes churches will treat you differently on a personal level if you don't come as much as they think you should. You might feel yourself shunned if you miss a couple of weeks because you were skiing, right? In the Rockies. <laughs> I know someone that you met, I won't give his name. Um, he was out of town on business, and so he worshiped at another church in the denomination. And when he was back, one of the elders was asking him about where he was going. He said, You know, I was on a business trip, but I worship so and so. He goes, Oh, did you keep the bulletin for me? Yep. He wanted, he wanted yep. a little evidence. I've heard that before as well. A little evidence yeah. that he, you know, he wasn't just making it up, right? Yeah. That's called lording it over them. 
there's no, there's there's nothing wrong with saying, "Hey, brother, uh, hope that you found a place to worship." You know, um, but that's a little excessive. Oh, that city! I know so and so is a pastor. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah. So the question of the day of worship hits on these things because pastors, church leaders, they have a responsibility to shepherd you. They have a responsibility to call the sheep back if they're straying in another city. And not <laughs> they have somewhat a responsibility to instruct you in the regularity of worship. On what basis do they do that? And what is the limit of their authority? What is the limit of my authority if you're a member of this church? We're going to talk more about that in a second. So three scenarios. Another one. Let's gather on Friday or Saturday night instead. It's so convenient. It's so convenient. I want to, uh, uh, the purpose of this is, to, is for me to answer this. What, if anything, is wrong with this? Is it wrong to gather on Friday or Saturday night? Well, at least particularly on Friday, that kind of goes against the idea of a day of worship, of a day of rest and worship, because assume, assumedly you would have just finished your work day, and so yeah. that's not a day of rest. That's a really good argument. I like that. And uh, I'm not going to get into that, that detail, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Kim? Yeah, yeah. I think from a very broad perspective, we can identify some of those things and say, okay, that really seems kind of consumer, um, consumer orientated in the sense that I'm here to meet your schedule, and church is all about you and what you want, and we're going to work something so that you can, you know, and still have your weekends free to enjoy. You can work all day, show up for worship, get that out of the way, then you have the rest of the weekend if to we do your home thing. Yeah. Amen. Exactly. And that's the argument I'm gonna make. God does have a schedule. I'm gonna to try to convince you of that. But again, I wanna say uh, on a more specific level, I, I agree with what has been said, but I'm gonna get more specific and try to answer what's wrong with this. Okay. All right. In response, many will say to those things that I just said, right? If how will many people respond to these arguments? Not how I'm going to respond, but how some other people might respond. They would say, well, it's not realistic to meet every day. Okay, it's a legitimate response. It's not realistic to meet every day. But again, as I mentioned earlier, if you miss any church gatherings, oftentimes you're seen as less mature, not as dedicated, not as super spiritual as others. But still, 
They will say, it's not realistic to meet every single day. Or they will say, it's not spiritually helpful to meet once a month, once a quarter, or once a year. Again, a very legitimate argument. Why not meet once a quarter? Well, that's just, it's just not enough for us to really get to know each other and to love each other and to worship together. That's a legitimate argument. But that's not the argument I'm going to make. (laughs) Because this is subjective and pragmatic, I'm going to argue. It's not a scriptural argument. It's a good argument, but it's not grounded in scripture. It's grounded in what I think is best. What seems to be the best based upon my observation of how things work. Pragmatic. If something has a good result, um, then it is a good thing. If it has a good end. Or they will say, the day doesn't matter. Come to Friday or Saturday worship instead. You know, as long as you're, as long as you're coming at some point to worship, corporate worship, and you're coming weekly, they would say, it doesn't really matter the day. Um, that's what some people will say, but these are not the arguments I'm going to make. All right, in response, I'm going to ask to what those, those things I said, those things I just mentioned. Has God given us direction here, or are we left to ourselves? Pretty obvious question, right? Has God spoken, or are we left to the realm of subjective and pragmatic, what seems to work best? What are the demands that the church elders, leaders, can make on people? And again, if you remember from like eight weeks ago, we talked about Christian liberty being very important in relation to um, the corporate church and worship. The doctrine of Christian liberty, that we are not to be bound by anything that's not in the Word of God. Right? So what are the demands that the church can make? What can I make on the people here? What rule, what objective standard has God given to determine when someone, Hebrews 10.25, is forsaking the assembly? Because that's a clear command in Scripture. Do not forsake the gathering, the assembly together, right? It's a command what is the, what's the objectivity to that command? Do not forsake the assembly. If I come once a month, is that forsaking the assembly? Or does that mean I have to come at a minimum every other week? Otherwise, I'll be forsaking the assembly. Or does that mean that I have to come more than once a year? Otherwise, I'm forsaking the assembly. You see, you see what I'm looking at? Uh, like, let's... let's has God clearly spoken? Or is this just, it's the determination of the elders that you are forsaking the assembly? Well, how am I forsaking the assembly? It is the determination of the elders that because you only come twice a month, you're forsaking the assembly. Is it left to the discretion of the elders, or is there an objective standard here? That's what I'm trying to say. How do we know and have a clear conscience before God that we have given enough of our time to corporate worship? Not private worship. We're commanded to pray without ceasing. We're commanded to uh, meditate day and night on the law of God, right? On the, on the Word of God. 
We are commanded to uh, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, daily denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and worshiping the Lord with everything that we do. But I'm talking about corporate worship. How do we know when we've given enough time to the assembly and to gathering in worship as God has commanded and as we see in the New Testament with other believers? So, all of this is why our confession goes on to speak of these things. And here's what it says, 22.7. As it is the law of nature that in general, a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. So that's talking, hey, all right, the law of nature reveals that some part of our time in our life has to be set aside for worship. Okay, and by God's appointment, that's referring to the Ten Commandments. God has spoken this way before. So by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment. Um, see, should I break that down right now? Oh, wait a minute. Binding all men in all, age, all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Now there's a lot there, and I know you're probably like, that says a lot of very specific stuff. Where is that in Scripture? And unfortunately, we're not going to get to cover it all, because I'm not spending this Uh, I'm going to give you a very broad overview, and we can talk about more in private. Or, you can pick up one of these free pamphlets that are on our front table. Uh, Joseph Piper here, uh, as a president of Greenville Presbyterian Seminary, is the Lord's Day for you. Very succinct and helpful argument defending this chapter, this view. But I'm going to say a few things. As I mentioned, they, they, they appeal to the fact that there's a law of nature. Okay, I'll explain what you mean by that. They appeal to the fact that there is instruction in the Word. And specifically, they're referring to the Ten Commandments. And if you will make note from the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments does not, do not, uh, the Fourth Commandment does not instruct to observe the seventh day. The, what they are seeing and what we'll get into is that the Fourth Commandment commands a Sabbath. But the specific day is positive. That's what the Confession said, a positive command, which means it must be defined by um, uh, within the covenant in which it falls. So, in other words, uh, let me put it this way. There is a moral essence to the command that one day in seven is to be set aside to God. But God, through His special revelation, defines what that day is. Let me put it another way. Everybody knows. I think I'm going to get into this. I might be jumping ahead. But everybody knows that we cannot live and flourish working all the time. Seven days in a row, all the time. You know, 
Uh, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. Right? Everybody knows that. And so it's written into creation, the law of creation, that we've got to take time off. Um, and that natural law of creation, the same law of creation that, for example, instructs us that man and woman <laughs> are meant for marriage and not man and man, right? It's a violation of the law of nature for two men to marry or two women to marry, right? That same law of nature um, instructs us that rest is needed after work, but the Word of God defines it more particularly, just like the Word of God defines marriage more particularly. Um, and, for example, it uh, prohibits divorce. I know it's a little confusing. I'm going to get into it, okay? But this is what the confession is pulling from. Law of nature, instruction in His Word. They're talking about the moral essence of the fourth commandment that is binding upon all people at all times. And if you look at the rest of the commandments... Thou shalt not kill, right? Thou shalt not steal. These are also moral commandments. They're not bound, they're not restricted just to the Mosaic Covenant, the people of Israel, for one period of time. The rest of the commandments are all upheld as the standard of God's instruction, both before and after the actual giving of the Ten Commandments. So this is what they are appealing to. Even though the Ten Commandments are specific in their application to Israel, it says, you know, you shall do no work, neither you or your servants or your animals. Right? We don't have animals or, or slaves. But that, that, that was given to specifically for Israel, but the moral essence still remains. And that's what the confession is pointing, on, pointing to. And of course, they're also saying that the Saturday, seventh-day Sabbath was for a time. And that now in the New Testament, it has been changed to the first day of the week. They say that Christ has changed it, and they, they, they appeal to the New Testament for the basis on the changing of the day. That's what it's saying. That's what we're kind of going to get into. Not in detail, of course. All right, so some counter-objections here to get you thinking. Uh, I don't want to... I don't want to skip over any objections. Isn't the Sabbath part of the Old Testament law of Israel? Hasn't been abolished with Christ? Wasn't it a type of Christ? Right? I mean, that's what Colossians seems to say. Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Seems... That Paul is saying, you don't have to observe the Sabbath. This was a shadow and the substance is Christ. What about this one? Romans 14.5, talking about Christian liberty. Paul is trying to exhort them to peace. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. For each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Basically, don't judge one another. Doesn't matter. If you believe that day is special, observe it to the Lord. He's pleased with that. But don't judge your brother. Galatians 4.10, a rebuke to the Galatians who were falling back into Judaism. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 
he equates their observe, observing of these special days as undermining his labors to uh, proclaim the gospel to them. So these are legitimate objections to the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. I don't want to act like these verses don't exist or that we don't have to wrestle through them. All right? So where is this found in the New Testament? What, how would we respond to these things? You see why I just couldn't just get it all in one week? I mean, <laughs> and we're not going to walk through those passages specifically, but I'm going to give you some broad principles for them. So what I want to do this, the rest of today and then going into next week is give a very brief defense of the Confessions Doctrine. Um, and I do mean brief. I'm going to just give a 30,000 uh, foot view. And um, if you have any questions, it's fine. We can jump into specific questions or specific passages if you'd like. So don't be afraid to ask. But as I mentioned ever, uh, earlier, everyone agrees that there ought to be some time set aside for work, rest, and worship. We see this in the weekly pattern of creation. Light of nature shows that all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. See, I knew I was jumping ahead. You see, let me, let me say this. There is a reason why God took six days to create the world. There's a reason. He could have done it in an instant. He could have done it over billions of years. He did it to set a weekly pattern for man. God presents himself as the worker, getting up in the morning, working, and then going to bed. He does this for six days, and then he rests, kind of, you know, sit back and walk, watches his cake rise in a sense, right? He sits back and enjoys the fruit of his labors on the seventh day. There is a reason why Creation is set for us in a pattern of a week. It's to set our pattern of life. It is to instruct us on how we ought to live according to our schedule. We are to work and then rest. Six days and one day. There is a balanced cycle of rest, excuse me, work, rest, and worship that also, from the light of nature, promotes human flourishing and the edification of the church. This is stuff that's just obvious. Everyone agrees on this, right? And so again, does a specific day and time really matter? Does it matter as long as, you know, there's some sort of resemblance of a pattern? Does it really matter if the, as long as the goal is met? Well, yes, we believe that it does. It matters because the specific day and time, excuse me, the specific day and time does matter if God has commanded it, right? It's kind of obvious. Has God spoken? If His Word directs us by command and example, well, then it does matter what day we rest and what day we worship. The specific. Specific day and time does matter if God has attached His promises to it, right? If He's commanded it, 
It's the negative side. We don't want to disobey His commandment. But what about if He's attached promises to it? Well, that puts a positive spin on it as well. And the example I want to bring here is the Lord's Supper. Consider the use of bread and wine versus pizza and Coke. You laugh. Yes, Trent. Trying to get me in trouble, Trent. <laughs> um, I will concede that grape juice is a form of fruit of the vine wine in some sense. But it's, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's a reason why I believe that we ought to observe with wine. Why is it important? Why couldn't we do it with pizza and Coke? Because there's inherent symbolism in bread and wine that are unique. I believe that wine should be red because it represents the blood of Christ. I believe it should be bitter because drinking the bitter cup is the consistent imagery of the wrath of God throughout Specifically, the prophets in the Old Testament. To remind us of the bitter cup that Christ drank for our, for our salvation. The bread. Um, I'm not going to die on this hill, but unleavened. Unleavened bread is symbolic for representing how Christ was without sin. Leaven was a symbol of sin in the Old Testament. So what I'm saying is that the, the symbolism of the elements contribute to the strengthening of our faith and the, um, the way in which it illustrates these truths and works them into our hearts. My argument is going to be that the specific day matters as well because this is the day in which Christ rose from the dead. This is the Lord's Day, as it's called in Revelation chapter 1. This, there is symbolism involved in the day itself that on a Friday or a Saturday night, um, with the exception of like a Good Friday worship service, you know, um, fails to capture. And there's other arguments for that as well. Um, Another argument would be, well, the church has to agree on a day because, um, you know, if every church practiced their own day, there would be a lot of confusion and lack of unity. Oh, our church meets on Mondays. Our church meets on Thursdays. Our church meets on Sundays. Our church meets on Wednesdays. I think there ought to be a practice of the universal church for the unity and for the peace and for the, to set things in order. I mean, that's a pragmatic argument. But those would be the two argue, main arguments that I would give for why the specific day and time does matter. Not only because I believe the Word instructs us by command and example, but also because there's inherent symbolism and unity and order built into the first day of the week. We have three minutes. All right. So, again, I'm brief. Are there any questions, comments?
because I could stop and take questions and get to this next week if you guys have something. Mark? Uh, oh, wait, no. You did. You answered it. Okay. Aren't there references in Acts to meeting on the first day of the week? Don't jump ahead. <laughs> there are. There are the references in the Gospels and in Acts, a specific pattern repeated about that notes that they met on the first day of the week. Yes. And there's an instruction as well. Two. I'm going to get to those. Could you go back to the previous slide just for a second? Sure. Okay. Command. Promises. Negative, positive. All right, I'm going to take three orders to talk about the created order. This is the foundation of the doctrine. The argument is that the Sabbath is part of the created order. All right? And Sabbath, most specifically, is a verb. It's a, it's a rest, an act of rest. Okay? The Sabbath day is defined by, again, by the Word of God in accordance with the covenant that uh, we're under. But we see this in Genesis 2-3. He creates the world, God does, and then He blesses the Sabbath and rests. And the question I would ask you is, why does He bless it? Why does He bless it? Well, the purpose of the blessing is not for Himself. God doesn't need a blessing. The act of blessing something is always in relation to His creation. He blessed it for us. Because some people will say, yeah, well, in Genesis 2-3, God never commands us to observe a Sabbath. All it says is that He blesses it. Well, the purpose of the blessing is for the creation. All right? The Sabbath is a day in which God blesses, I missed the word there, for man. All right? This is where it all goes back to. Then we see in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, right? What is the justification given for that commandment? Why does God tell Israel in the Ten Commandments to observe the Sabbath? For, remember it, for, remember it, because in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. The Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The justification for the command is the creation account. It's grounded in creation. All right? Why is that important? Because creation came before the Mosaic Law. And thus it supersedes and transcends it as well. That's why, if you go back to those other verses about Colossians 2, Romans 14, Galatians 4, they're talking about the Mosaic Law. That's why we say, and we can get, we'll get into those, that's why those don't specifically apply in the same way to the doctrine as a whole. They refer to the calendar, the Jewish calendar, which I'll get into. But if it's grounded in creation, it supersedes and transcends the Mosaic Law and that time period. The example I will give for this is marriage. When teaching on marriage and divorce and the roles of men and women, Jesus and Paul point back to creation in teaching about it. Lord, why is divorce wrong? The Mosaic Law allowed it. Well, let me tell you, from the very beginning, God created them male and female, Jesus says in Matthew 19. Divorce is wrong because creation, because of what's given in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Paul does the very same thing in 1 Timothy 2. 
he goes back to creation. And creation, the creation account, doesn't explicitly talk about divorce. It doesn't explicitly talk about men and women's roles. This is Paul and the Lord doing theology. Brings a smile to my face. Right? And Jesus also, when talking about the Sabbath specifically in Mark 2.27, refers to creation as well. The Sabbath was made for man, was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created as a gift for man, he's telling the Pharisees. You are making it a burden by binding people with all of your rules. All right, I've got to stop, but here's what we see, therefore. Yes, yes. It precedes the Mosaic Law. We see a hermeneutical example of how the Lord and the Apostle Paul treat the creation account. All right? They do theology and they interpret Scripture in ways which we obviously are to follow after and mimic ourselves. All of this coincides with the fact that the other nine commandments are clearly moral. They're not ceremonial law. Not killing your neighbor isn't something that's limited to the Mosaic Covenant, right? They're perpetual. They, they transcend all covenants, both before and after. And they're treated, all the other nine commandments are clearly treated as binding and instructive in the New Testament church. They're upheld. So, that's, it's rooted in creation. We're going to build up on that. We're going to look at the New Testament specifically next week, positively and negatively. Make some application. What about labor? What about work? Things of that nature. Then we'll jump into these other three right here. All right. um, Let's close in prayer.